Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. For those of you who maybe this is our fir- your first time with us, we are in a series right now called, again, The Book of Acts, and we are talking about the history of the church. And we're not just looking at this as a historical narrative. We're, we're learning from the church. We're learning from what the church was like when it was first started. We, we got to see the very beginning of the church, the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. And we've been looking at it from really the moment Jesus resurrected from the dead to uh, in some of the key figures in the book of Acts. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the life of a man named Stephen, who was the first martyr in the Bible, the first physical martyr who gave his life for the gospel. There's a really interesting book um, that I remember reading some of it when I was younger in age. It was called Jesus Freaks. How many of y'all remember Jesus Freaks? Remember that book? How many of you remember the band DC Talk? How many of you are ashamed to say that you listen to DC Talk? I, I, I like DC Talk. I like DC Talk. If you, those of you who are still listening to Christian music, it's where Toby Mac got his start. Okay, DC Talk. And so, but there was a great book that they partnered with Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it was, it was called Jesus Freaks. And it was all about Christians throughout history who had given their life for the sake of the gospel. And, and it tells these stories in detail. So if you've never read that book, I encourage you to get it. It's a really cool book. But we looked at the life of Stephen, and we looked at the life of the great evangelist Philip, who, of course, preached the gospel to the people in Samaria, people that the Jewish people wanted nothing to do with, yet they saw God's Spirit moving there. Uh, and, of course, last week we looked at probably the greatest figure in the New Testament Next to Jesus, of course. A man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, or as you may know him, the Apostle Paul. Now this man, Saul of Tarsus, the reason why he's such an important figure to us is he wrote 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament. The New Testament has 27 books, and this man, Saul of Tarsus, wrote 14 of those books. God used him to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Now, let me explain what that means. In the Jewish times, and really still today, if you weren't a Jew, you were considered a Gentile. There was no, like, I'm part of this and this and this. Like, there, were, there, there would have been no Americans in that day. It was, I'm a Jew and you're not. And we call you a Gentile. Because the Jewish people were the ones who had the covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham and it came through the bloodline to them. They were God's chosen people and they knew it. Now, God had a greater plan to save the whole world, and, and it come through that race of people, but they were holding on to the fact that we are God's special people. We're the Jews, you're the Gentiles, that's it. And so we see that, we see that this is, it was very believable for them to think that way. I mean, think about this. Jesus was a Jewish man. We've talked about that many times before. His disciples were Jewish People. They were Jewish men and Jewish women who followed Jesus around. His apostles were Jewish men. 
the church on the day of Pentecost, when it was birth, there were people from all over the world, but they were all Jewish people. And so it was very believable for them that even though Jesus came and shed his blood and told them to preach the gospel, preach the word, make disciples in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, that for many of them, they still thought that meant to the Jewish people. Until this man, Saul of Tarsus, came and really began changing. And it began with Stephen and Philip, but Saul took it to a whole nother level. And the reason, and the, the books that he wrote, most of them were written to Gentiles, meaning us, people who were not Jewish, people who, do not, who did not originally have that covenant that Abraham had. But this man was a great man. This was a man who stands apart in history as one of the greatest men who has ever lived, bar none, hands down. But what's often true of great people, truly great people, is this. There's a great breaking that takes place in their lives. When you find a great person, you can almost rest assured that there was a great breaking that took place in that person's life. I'm not talking about our standards of greatness today because we live in a culture today where anybody can be insta-famous. Anybody can have a YouTube channel and people all over the world know who they are. Anybody can have their 15 minutes of fame. But how many of you know being famous and making a great contribution to the world are two totally different things? There are people who are famous for a little while. But then there are people who make a great contribution to our world. Those are truly great people. I remember when I was younger and when I was in youth group back in the day, one of the big statements were, Britney Spears is famous. Mother Teresa is great. Right? And so there was this distinction between everybody may know who you are, but everyone was not positively impacted by your life. There's a difference between a famous person and a great person. But when you find a great person, even, even fewer are the people who make a great contribution to our world for the kingdom of God, who leave a lasting kingdom impact on the world. There are some names that I can mention, and if I mentioned them, you would know them because they made a great contribution to our world through the kingdom. Billy Graham was one of them. Incredible people in our world like that. Paul probably stands head and shoulders above all of them that we would mention, again, except for Jesus. But there's one thing about Paul. He suffered, and he suffered greatly. He was used greatly, but he suffered greatly. Now, we just saw the Olympics. How many of you watched the Olympics just a few weeks ago? We were glued to the TV. I mean, me and my wife, my kids, we were watching, I mean, we were watching the swimmers, we were watching the racers, we were even watching some of those weird sports that nobody thought would be there. What, what's up with the three-on-three -three basketball thing? Did anybody get that? Damar's the only person here. Thank you, Damar. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's all of these great sports. Why was skateboarding? I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm old. I'm old. I, I guess that's what it is. I am 40 now. I tell y'all that often. But there's something, we, we were watching the Olympics, and we kind of have this, this tendency, all of us do, that when we're watching 
the Olympics, we find ourselves yelling at the TV, telling them to do better. (laughs) Just think about that for a moment. We're at home eating pizza. They're elite athletes who've trained their entire lives to get there, and we're telling them what they should be doing. Run faster! You know you did it. Don't look at me like you're so holy and and all of that. Some of you probably said words that you shouldn't have said to the TV when they were running. God will forgive you. But we look at that and just think, they've given their lives intense training to get to this place. They are the elite of the elite. And we only see about, in some cases, 30 seconds of the entirety of their lives up until that moment. And we judge them by that. And we're sitting back yelling, saying, you need to run faster. I'm pretty sure they're saying, I'm running as fast as I can. But we judge them by that. And we don't see everything that it took for them to even make it to that place. We don't see the sacrifice. We don't see the struggles. We don't see the pain. We don't see the things they gave up. We don't see the things that we were a part of that they weren't able to be a part of because they were training. Because they were sacrificing. Such is the case with great people. But I want you to know something, because maybe you were in this place this morning and you're dealing with great pain. I want you to know God wastes nothing. God wastes absolutely nothing. And there is a purpose to your pain. It may not seem like it. It may not look like it. You may not understand it. But God in his sovereignty has a purpose for your pain. And he has a way of taking those things that you go through that are seen and unseen and using them for your good and his glory. We're going to see that in the life of this man named Saul of Tarsus this morning. Go with me to the book of Acts chapter 9, verse 19. This is what it says. It says, afterwards... This is after Ananias came and prayed for him. Saul, as if you missed last week, Saul on the road to Damascus to go persecute Christians. Jesus shows up in in a bright light and he sees Jesus, knocks him down, and he hears from God. And Jesus tells him, why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul surrenders his life to Jesus and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he follows, he gets born again, he goes, his friends take him to Damascus, the place that he was going. He goes into the city blind now. And God sends a man by the name of Ananias to come to him and pray for him. And when he prays for him, the Bible says something like scales fall from his eyes. And he can see and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. Brand new, born again, Saul of Tarsus. That's not my voice that I hear. Thank you. Desiree, you want to tell everybody that was you who did that? Okay, yeah, shift the line. We pick up the story here. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. It says, afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. I want you to notice two things that that happened instantly in that moment. He's born again. His eyes can see. And one of the first things that happens is he's surrounded by believers. 
He's surrounded by believers. The second thing is he begins to preach about Jesus. Now let's talk about this first one for a moment. He was with the believers. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later on in the message. But it's important for you to understand that one of the first things you need to do when you're born again is to connect with other Christians. To connect with other believers. Why? Because Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. We need each other in Christianity. We depend on one another. God has made us, formed, and shaped us as a body to supply what the other parts of the body need. There, there's no lone rangers in Christianity. There's no, it's me and God and then all of them. No, 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 the them are you. Because you are a part of the same body. We need us. I say that all the time. We need us. You need other believers in your life. And what happens with many Christians when they come to church is they, they may sit somewhere obscure. And I'm not making fun of people sitting in the back because I used to do that as well. I get it. There's nothing wrong with sitting in the back. But what happens if you come in and you don't want anybody to know that you're there, the place you sit is furthest, closest to the door. So if things get weird, I'm out. But you come in and, and you get saved, you get born again, and Jesus changes your life. But you don't tell anybody about it. And because you don't tell anybody about it, you never grow. Because you don't have the people there helping you to see what you don't see. You don't have the people there helping you teach, to help teach you, excuse me, how to actually live out this Christianity thing. We think, I signed my name on the document, I have fire insurance, and it's over. But that's not true. The healthiest Christians that I know are the Christians that are surrounded by other healthy believers. That's what we need. And we sit, we, we, we sit and hope that nobody sees us. But the truth is, is that God has put the answer to your prayers around you. We need other believers in our lives. When we get to the place where, and, and it's happened. People come to church and something bad goes, goes on in their life and they leave the church and they're mad at the church. And they say, the church never helped me. Let me help you. No one knows you. We can't help what we don't know. If you're expecting a phone call, I don't have your number. Because I don't know you. You are a part of the body. Connect yourself to the body and be known. Because that's when you'll find many of the answers of your prayer, to your prayers. What do I mean by that? Pastor, I need some friends. Guess what? They're here. I'm lonely. I need people in my life. Guess what? Every week you show up to a place with people who want to be in your life. I need accountability to actually do this thing right. Guess what? That's here too. I need help overcoming this problem or this addiction or this struggle or this sin habit in my life. I need help overcoming this. Guess what? The answer to that is here too. I mean, even down to the practical, I need help learning how to be a, a dad or a mom. That's here. I need help learning how to manage my finances. That's here. Many of the answers of your prayers can be found here. Why? Because you are in the body. And the solution to your issue is in the body. 
The body supplies what various parts need. Second thing that we see immediately that happens in Saul's life is he starts preaching about Jesus. First day, first day he can see he's out preaching. He's out going around telling people about Jesus. He immediately shares his experience with other people. When you're born again, you just want to tell people about your experience. When I got born again and I realized, wait a minute, I'm not going to hell anymore. And God has a plan for me. Like, he wants to use me. Are you kidding me? Everybody's got to know about this. I went from being the, the, the kid, the big tough guy that people didn't want to be around because they didn't know what I was going to do, who was really just scared and hurt on the inside. I went from being that guy to being radical about telling people about Jesus because I just wanted them to know. And I was thoroughly surprised that my friends did not want to leave everything that we were all doing to follow me. I was, I was genuinely surprised by that. And I remember inviting my friends to come to church and getting the lamest excuses in the world. Man, I can't come. My clothes weren't dry. <laughs> Y'all have heard them if you invited people to church. I can't. I got that thing at today. Like, I've been your friend for four years. You have never had a thing on Sunday. Your clothes are never dry. They're always wrinkled. Just come to church. I was surprised that my friends didn't want to follow me. But I knew something. And I wanted them to know it. Because I knew all about God, but I had never known God. And now I was in a place where I knew God. And I, I knew God and God knew me. And it was a relationship. And I wanted them to have the same thing. Such was the case with Saul. Y'all know what it's like when you, you experience something and you just want everybody else to experience it. You watch a good movie, what do you do? You tell everybody about it. You go to a good restaurant, what do you do? You tell everybody about it. You go on Yelp, you go on Google, you start writing reviews. Some of y'all don't need to write reviews because y'all nitpick everything. I see y'all's names on Google and Yelp. I'm like, yeah, they're in my church. I'm just joking, I don't see, I don't see your name. But we have a good experience and we want everybody to know about it. We want everybody to have the same experience. You've told people that you know friends, they have the best restaurant room. And you know it's a restaurant room because only my mom has the best room. There's a distinction. If you're not from Acadian, let me explain. Let me just give you Cajun 101 for a moment. Cajuns, are y'all okay if I do this? Okay, so there's two types of gumbo. There's restaurant gumbo and real gumbo. Right? It's amazing. Y'all won't clap for the Bible, but y'all clap for Ruth. I'm talking about Ruth. But it's true, though. There's like when you're telling people about a restaurant, you're like, they have really good restaurant gumbo. Nobody says they have great gumbo. They have real good restaurant gumbo. But their gumbo's not as good as mine. Are we, when we have these experiences, we want people to know about it. Man, they have the best boudin balls. Their boudin balls is better than Billy's, which is a lie because Billy's has the best boudin balls on the planet. Thank you. Man, I need to preach about food more to y'all, y'all. But Saul's eyes were open to the truth, and he wanted everybody to know about it. Now, I want you to see something. Saul 
knew about the gospel already. He had an edge on most of you who just come for the first time and you're born again and your lives are changed. You have a powerful testimony. Share that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want you to know something. He was a theologian. He was a trained Bible scholar. Only problem is he didn't know the author of the book. He knew the words of the book, but he didn't know who wrote it. So he understood that. So the moment that he, he knew about the Messiah, that's why he was persecuting Christians because he knew that they're out there saying that this man named Jesus of Nazareth is actually the Messiah. And I know all the stuff that's supposed to be said about the Messiah, so he can't be the Messiah. Except he was and is the Messiah. So when he met that, it took a revelation of God. Let me tell you something. Information doesn't change anybody. Just giving people information does not change them. They have to be drawn by the Spirit of God. God sovereignly draws people by his Holy Spirit. That's why we pray for people. That's why we ask God to open up their eyes. That's why we ask God to not give them any rest until they know you. Because it's God's spirit who draws people. It's not the information that they get. It's that moment when the Holy Spirit goes and blows their mind. They still have to agree to it. They still have to choose it. But it is God's grace who draws them. This is what the Bible says. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 9 verse 21. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers In Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priest? They were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saul's life has changed. He's following Jesus. But isn't that the guy? Isn't that the same guy who used to? I remember when he used to. Church, let me tell you something. There will always be people who are there to remind you of your past. There will always be people who feel like it is their mission in life to remind you of the old you. But you have to know this in your knower. You have to know this in your spirit. They don't define you. God does. God does. There was... This was not something that Saul could just sweep under the rug. Why? Because he had made it so publicly known that he was against this. He let everybody know, I'm the guy who's going to arrest them, put them in prison. I was a part of killing Stephen. I am against this. So there was no hiding what he did. The same way for some of us. We made our sins so publicly known. People, that's why they remember it. Because we made it publicly known. But let me just say this. If your sin is made public, your repentance needs to be made public as well. As public as your sin was, your repentance needs to be equally as public. That's why when you sin, sometimes the Holy Spirit will make you go to people and and confess that, hey, I just want you to know, I know you saw me arguing with my wife and I just wanted to tell you that's not cool. Why? Because we sinned in public, so we need to repent in public. So this man Saul, they knew all about him. But when he got born again and he got changed, the thing that didn't change was his reputation. In our lives, we get saved, we get born again, but it takes some time for our reputation to get born again. 
But that's why we have to know who God says we are. We have to know what he says about us. We have to know that those people don't define us. Truth be told, what really defines us, if we're being honest, is what we believe. When we believe what they say about us, we're going to have the tendency to move towards that. But when we believe what God says about us, we will equally have the tendency to move towards that. That's why it's important for you to know your Bible. It's important for you to know the Word of God so you can know without a shadow of a doubt, this is what my Creator says about me. So this is who I am. This is what I believe about myself because it's what my Father says I am. Dads, let me tell you something. Let me put, let me put this responsibility back in your court for a moment. It's your job to define your children. What do I mean by that? We live again. I'm, I pick on culture all the time because it is warring against you, whether you know it or not. But it's your job to define your children because culture is trying to define your children. Culture is trying to tell you where the line of morality is. Culture is trying to tell your 13-year-old what they should look like, what they should act like, and what they should aspire to be one day. But men, God has given you the charge to define your kids. Don't you abdicate that to your television screen. Don't you abdicate that to social media. Don't you abdicate that to the voices of the other 13 and 14-year-olds around you. You are God's instrument in the lives of your children to define them. Don't give that away. And so they get to the place where they are who he says they are. That's really what you're doing. You're speaking on behalf of him to them. So it's not just important you know your Bible for you. It's important that you know your Bible for your family. You can tell them who they are, who God says they are. Now, even with these accusations against Saul, these people accusing him, what's really interesting is this. Saul, he didn't didn't budge, but he actually says this later on in the Bible. These people were glorifying God. They may have been accusing him, but all they were doing is bringing to light what God actually did. They were saying, weren't you the guy who used to, didn't you used to do that? And he could stand there and go, I sure did, but Jesus changed me. You are telling my testimony for me. You are telling the world what I was like for me because now they can see what Jesus has done in my life. Church, your testimony is powerful. Don't, don't hide what God has brought you from. Because there's people who need to know what God has brought you from so they can know God can bring them from it. God will take the weaknesses in your soul and the things in your life that you're not proud of and he will use them to help people who are hiding the fact that they even struggle with it. Or who think that they're hopeless that they could never get out of it. Let God use you. Let God use you. Acts 9 verse 22, this is what it says. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, this is interesting. It says, after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. Another translation says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, many many of us believe, and many, many scholars out there believe, I'll put it that way, that that period of many days was actually about three years. 
It was about a three-year period. Now, Paul talks about this when he writes the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, this is what it says. It says, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. What then happened? I did not rush out to consult with any other human beings, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was there. Let me stop there for a moment. Pastor, didn't you just say that we need people? But here's Paul saying he didn't consult with anybody. There's two things that's important for you to know there. Number one, Paul was a very sovereign vessel. God was going to use him to do things that he was not using any other men in the world to do, maybe with the exception of Peter and James in the Bible. God was sovereignly setting him apart. But even with that, he was trying to make a point. He wasn't saying, I didn't need anybody, because if you remember, it was Ananias who prayed those scales off of his eyes. And later on in the same chapter, he goes to the apostles and, and he tells them, and, and, and we'll see it in Acts in the future, but he goes to the apostles to see, to get them to validate the ministry that he was doing. Because he says, I didn't want to be wasting my time if I was not doing what the church wanted me to do. So he, was, he submitted to the authority that God placed there. So he was not saying, I don't need people. What he was saying was, people didn't choose me, God chose me. People didn't appoint me to do this. God appointed me to do this. And then they agreed with God. And that's something else for me to say to, to many of us who, God's got a call on my life. Well, then when he's ready to confirm it, he will. Why don't they see the call on my life? Maybe because God's still working on your character. And if everybody saw your gifting, they would put you in a position that your character wasn't ready to keep you in. That's a different story. I'll keep going. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. He says this. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. Now, the Arabia they're talking about, he's mentioning here, is called the Nabataean Arabia. A Nab the Nabataean Arabia was one of the, those rare places in the, that region at the time that was not ran by Rome. It was not under the Roman Empire. It was, it was a, an anomaly, one of those rare places that Rome had not completely devastated and taken over. But he'd gone there. Now, also in the Nabataean, Ara in Nabataean Arabia, excuse me, was Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the law. Paul saying, I went away for years. And I learned from the Holy Spirit and I learned from God. There will be times in your life where God separates you. There will be times when God calls you out of the old you so that he can teach you who the new you actually is. God may call some of you to seasons of prayer and fasting. We believe in that because the Bible talks about that. But even in just being born again, and I talked about this last week, you need to have lost friends. You need to have people that you're sharing the gospel with and you're in relationship with them because you know God wants to change their life and he's going to use me to do that. We need to have those people. But some of us need that season where you come out from among them, where you're away from all of their influence so that you can learn who you are so that you can then go back to influence them. That's important for you to know. 
So it says here that this period probably took about three years, but he goes back to Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem. But while he's in Damascus, this happens. Acts 9, verse 24. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lured him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Let's remember, let's, let's rewind this for a moment. Saul goes to Damascus so that he can kill Christians. He encounters Jesus. Life is radically changed, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he's preaching to those same Jewish people that were cheering him on as their hero. And now they want to kill him. And what's interesting is that the large baskets, many people believe that the large, ba- the only way that, the only baskets large enough in that day and time, these wicker baskets that they used were used for garbage, to lower garbage out of the walls of the city. So this man is heading to Damascus with all of the paperwork and the authority and the pomp and the people cheering him on, and he leaves that same city, Lord, hiding from his life, Lord, in a garbage can. Something's taking place here. Something's changing here. On his way to Damascus, he's blinded. The people that once called him a hero now want to kill him. He ends up going into the wilderness for probably three years. When he leaves, he's lowered out of a garbage can. Here's the trend. Things don't look like they're going well for Saul. Things don't look like things are happening. But what is happening is God is fulfilling his plan for Saul. God is making and breaking a great man. God will take the processes we go through to mold us and to make us and to shape us. That's why I believe the Bible says don't think it's strange when you find yourself dealing with these things. As if some strange thing has happened to you. We all have pain. We all have pain. And I know well enough because I pastor many of you and I'm in many of your lives to know that things have been rough for you. Marriage problems, kid problems, job problems, temptation problems, struggles you can't seem to overcome, persecution, family members coming against you. All of these things that we we tend tend to think, well, if I'm saved, everything should be great. But that's not what happened to Paul. God took the things that he was dealing with and he used it to make him, to shape him, and to break him. So what happens when God uses someone, it's a dangerous place to be in. I cannot tell you how much, how, how true this is. When God is really using a person's life, if they even have the inkling that it is them, great will be their fall. When you even think that you're standing on your own two feet, your fall is going to be great. It's those who recognize that it's God who's holding me up. It is God who's strengthening me. It is God who's using me. Who are the people that feel that way? The people who've been broken. We don't like brokenness. We don't like the concept of brokenness because that doesn't seem right. But the Bible says a broken, a contrite heart, God will not despise. God will take situations in your life to make them 
turn around for your good. What am I saying? If you have a call of God on your life, expect breaking. Expect hardships. They're going to come. But the good news is God will always be with you. He will work them out for your good. You will look back on those things. Maybe it will take years, but you'll look back on it and go, that was good. I didn't understand it when it happened. I didn't understand why it happened. But thank God that it did because you turned it around for my good and for your glory. But you got to stay the process. Some of you attempted right now to quit. Don't quit. Some of you attempted to give up right now. Don't give up. God's doing something. He wastes nothing. There's purpose attached to your pain if you don't quit. The only way that you lose is if you quit. The only way that you lose is if you give up. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I go through it myself. I may come up here and smile and preach and I'm preaching faith to you, but I need that faith many times in my own life. But I've lived long enough in this to see him turn it around for my good, so I trust him. I trust him. What am I telling you? Trust him. He's making you, he's shaping you, and he's breaking you. When God uses a person greatly, he he breaks them, he uses them. And most of the time it happens in a way that's not visible for everyone to see. Can I just pastor you for a moment? Some of you show up on Sunday mornings and you're smiling, but you're hiding the tears. God knows it. He sees it. He hasn't left you. Look at me. He hasn't left you. He's right there. He's right there. Paul was a hero. He was used greater than any other man. Yet God broke him and used him. Answering the call of God is not easy. But it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because one day you're going to stand before him. And he's going to give you a crown. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're looking for. That's what we want. You can clap. That's okay. Acts 9 verse 26 says this, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers. Look at what happens next. He tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So now even the church people were rejecting him. If ever there were a man who had the right to give up on the church, it was this man. Because just years before this, he was killing them. He was throwing them in prison. Now he's joining them. He's saying, hey guys, I'm, I'm one of y'all now. And they're going, uh, I don't know about that. Once you go to Midtown, just for a little while, and we'll see how that goes. They were rejecting him. And it just makes you go, he had to be thinking, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I was just putting you, I, I, I literally saw Jesus. He showed up, and they didn't believe him. Church hurt is real. Can I be honest? Church hurt is real. There are people who come to church and they get hurt. 
and they get offended and they get upset and people break their trust and it happens. But let me just assure you of something. It doesn't give you an excuse to reject the church. It is real. Why does it happen, you may ask? Maybe you've come in from churches where people have let you down. Why does it happen? Because there are people in the church. And everywhere that you go that there's people, there's the tendency that things can go bad. But though there's people, there is a God who overarches all of those things, who can take even those people's bad choices and mistakes and once again, turn them around for your good. God can take the moments that you look at and go, God, I can't believe I trusted them. I can't believe I did that, God. And turn it around so that you look back and go, Jesus, thank you for teaching me that. Thank you for helping me. It was good that that happened. But again, you've got to stay the process. People get hurt because there's people. Some of us don't want to get close to people because we're too afraid of getting hurt. Pastor, what if they reject me? What if they don't? Pastor, what if, what if I open up and I get hurt? What if you open up and you get free? It's a chance worth taking. We give up on people before God can send us a Barnabas. What do I mean by that? The next verse tells us. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. So again, here's Saul. He's showing up. And he's like, guys, I'm, I'm with y'all. And they're standing there rejecting him like, we don't know. You were killing us just a few years ago, so I don't know about that. In verse 27. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. See, Saul was being rejected until Barnabas spoke up for him. Now, if you remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4, same Barnabas, same guy. His real name was Joseph. But they changed his name to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas was the man who sold all of his property and gave, excuse me, gave his piece of property. I don't know if it was all of his property, but he sold some property and he gave all of the money to the apostles and laid it at their feet. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira were likely trying to imitate him, except they were holding on to the money and being deceptive. But Barnabas gave it all. So Barnabas was a hero. Barnabas was highly respected. Barnabas had great credibility, and he risked his credibility. He lent his credibility to this man named Saul. Church, let me tell you something. We all need a Barnabas. We all need somebody in our lives who is willing to speak up for us, to love us, to help us, to lend some credibility to us, to say, listen, I know they've made some mistakes, but I see genuine change in them. Let's give them a chance. We all need somebody who believes in us. But let me tell you this. When you have that person in your life, don't you ruin that. Don't you ruin that. When God sends you a Barnabas, don't ruin it. Don't have something secretly in your heart. You get honest and you get real. You get genuine. You let it be known. This is where I'm at. But we all need a Barnabas. We all need that person who's going to look at us in the eye and go, you are a man of God. You can do this. 
Don't you dare quit. You all, we all need that, that person who's going to look at you and go, you're a woman of God. God has called you. God has chosen you. You can be a great mom. You can be a great wife. Yes, you can. Don't you believe the lie? This is what God says about you. We all need that. And that's what Barnabas was to Saul. He was that encouragement. We all need that person who's discipling us, speaking into our life, helping us follow Jesus and be better. But not only do we also need a Barnabas in our lives, many of you who are mature believers, you need to be a Barnabas in someone's life. You need to be that person who grabs a hold of that struggling young believer and says, come on, let me show you how to do this. I see you coming every week. I know you don't know what you're doing. I know you're trying to fake it. I've been there. Come on, let me show you how to do this. We need to be a Barnabas to someone. Let me ask you a question. Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Barnabas? And who are you being a Barnabas to? Who are you lending credibility to? Because here's the thing. If it was not for the Barnabas, the church may not have accepted Saul. They may have thrown away, pushed away a man who was going to later become the greatest figure in the church. And I said this a few weeks ago. I said this about Philip. I said this last week when we were talking about Ananias. And now I'm saying this again about Barnabas. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. If you step out and do it, who knows what God can do? What would have happened if the man who led Billy Graham to Jesus at that crusade would have said, yeah, I don't feel like doing it tonight. What would have happened if the person who led you to Jesus would have said, I'm not really feeling this church thing anymore. You never know. So I'm closing with this, Acts 9, 28. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem. Think, listen to this, with them. He went from the outcasts to traveling with the big boys. He went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. That's going to happen a whole lot throughout the case of his life. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It also grew in numbers. This is almost like the, the beginning of something new in the church. In the book of Acts, it's almost like this is the, the turning of a page. Why do I say that? Because it began, this chapter, if you will, of the church began with this man, Saul, trying to kill Christianity. And through the power of God, he now becomes the greatest asset in Christianity. So the church now has peace. And they're operating in the fear of the Lord. And they're operating in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. Next week, we're going to... As we turn the page, we're going to talk about Peter and how God can 
God can take our way of box thinking and show us that God's not in our box. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your word, God, that transforms us. Lord, again, I pray that if you can do that in the life of Saul, you can do that in the life of the people that we're praying for that seems like there's no hope. God, I pray that you would send the infamous to this church. I pray that you would send the people whose sin is so widely known in our region. Send them into your house, born again, following you, serving you. Save the ones that we think are unsavable because it's just who you are. Save the ones, God, that even have hurt people, that have done things, that have wounded people because you are merciful, God. And you look at sin on a level playing field. We're all separated from you, apart from Jesus. But Lord, I even pray now for, as we prayed earlier, I pray for those in the nations around the world, the Taliban, who seem like they're unsavable. Let a great revival break out in that nation. Jesus, become the Lord. You already are, but make it known through the church that you are the Lord of that nation. We love you. We thank you. If you're here this morning and you say, as I'm talking about the, the church and, and God transforming people's lives like Saul, maybe you would say, Pastor, my life is not transformed. I don't know God. I'm not born again. But I would like to be. If my sins can be forgiven, I want that. If that's you, I want to pray a prayer with you. There's nothing magical about the prayer. It's simply a prayer of surrender. What I'm talking about is being born again. Jesus told a religious leader, a a great religious leader of his day, that you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're first born again. What was he saying? You must be born again in order to see heaven, in order to see God's kingdom here on earth and, and, and be a part of God's family. You have to be born again. How do you do that, Pastor? It's as easy as ABC. A, you admit that you're a sinner. B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. And C, you confess. Confess what? That he is now Lord of your life. That you're bowing your knee and surrender to him and saying, I'm going to follow you. I did that. December 31st, 1996, and my life was never the same after that. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I don't, I want that. I want my life to never be the same from this moment on. I want to be born again. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to just lift up your hand and I'm going to lead you in that prayer. We're going to all pray it together. But today, God's going to meet you right where you're at and you're going to be born again. One, two, three. If that's you, lift up your hand. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be born again. I want to be born again in this place. Thank you. Thank you. You can put them down. Church, pray this prayer out loud with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin to follow you. And from this moment on, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. 
In Jesus' name, amen.